And I've got check marks. I'm waiting to see until I can see someone in here. So we're on uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter today. And well, I can I can see people starting to pop in. So let me hit the reel here, and then we'll we'll get the show on the road. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. All right. Well, welcome everyone. Today, I've got a I've got an interesting guest for you. We're we're talking with Eric J. Gall. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, David. Well, Eric reached out to me, and uh, we had a little little conversation, and uh, I thought, wow, this guy's really interesting. You've got a pretty interesting background, and then you eventually evolved in your career to becoming an award winning business broker. And I just thought there's so many different things we could probably talk about. Why don't we start off by giving everyone an introduction into who Eric is? Uh, why don't you tell us about your career path? Uh, and then I'm, there's probably a good chunk of that I want to dive back into it here with some of my initial questions. But let's start off with, uh, you know, how did you get going in the world of business? Well, let's, you know, it might be easier just to start with kind of the end and then jump back to the beginning. Um, you know, right now I'm the, uh, as you mentioned, a business broker. So, and I'll call it a lower middle market uh, M&A intermediary as well. Uh, president, founder, uh, Edison Business Advisors here in Southwest Florida. Uh, we also have an office in the Midwest in Columbus, Ohio at the moment, too. But I got into this uh, basically back in the late 90s. Uh, I was uh, working at Ford Motor Company and I worked in the business office. And while I was in the business office, there was a few things that happened. One was uh, we were in the middle of negotiations on uh, acquisition, uh, or actually I'll call it a merger of our licensing department and uh, another company called Halo Corporation out of Illinois. And Halo Corporation was known for, you know, the plastic license plate surrounds that you would see, you know, they have the dealer name on them uh, in the dealerships, but they started sourcing all kinds of, you know, trinkets, you know, for auto dealers uh, out of China and had grown well beyond, you know, the original halos. So Ford at the time had all the brands, Jaguar, Land Rover, Volvo, Ford and Mazda, uh, you know, under one umbrella at that time. So from a licensing perspective, it made a lot of sense to try to bring something in house to try to better control the licensing of, you know, products like, you know, a, a jacket that says Mustang on it or, you know, uh, so, so Ford basically wanted to get into the promotional products industry because of the stuff dealers were ordering. Right, right. So that came that came into our office, and you know, and I, I did a little bit of uh, work on that uh, that uh, merger with Halo Corporation, and then uh, that actually was rolled up into uh, another merger with a company called Beanstalk out of New York, and Beanstalk was the preeminent licensing uh, company, uh, you know, in that. Era. I don't know if they still are, but I mean, they had, you know, Coca-Cola, you know, all the Ford brands, uh, you know, were rolled up in there. They had uh, Caterpillar, John Deere, I think, um, Mary Kate and Ashley, which was a huge, 
a huge money maker for them. So they were the kind of uh, preeminent brand uh, licensing company in the, in the world at the time. So we rolled that up. So that kind of got me involved a little bit. And then some, some uh, acquisitions that Ford made, uh, you know, during, uh, I would say, well, before the internet bubble, you know, uh, also came across my desk right after the internet bubble when they were like, ah, you know, this stuff, uh, you know, really doesn't fit where we're headed with the company. So, you know, can some of these be packaged up and, and sold off. So, you know, not knowing what to do, uh, you know, never having sold a business before, I, you know, called up a few private equity folks, spoke with them, had lunch with them, ask them how they'd like to see something like, you know, uh, a 40 bay uh, automotive uh, repair shop packaged. And, you know, they gave me, you know, some examples and helped me, you know, figure it out, you know, fairly quickly. So that kind of started it. Then there was a little bit of a lull. Um, you know, I did, I did some other jobs at Ford. And then uh, uh, in the mid 2000s, just, just looking for a change, needed to do something different. And uh, we part I partnered together with a few other uh, Ford folks who were you know looking to take a uh, buyout, and we pulled our money together. We bought uh, five automotive service centers um, in Florida. We bought uh, a logistics company, a logistics software company, and then last mile delivery franchising rights uh, for that last mile delivery. And, that was great until, you know, the oil shock in 2008 and nine, when, you know, you're, when you're changing oil, putting tires on vehicles and, you know, transporting people's goods from coast to coast, uh, when you're, when the price of, uh, you know, diesel fuel goes from a dollar 71 to $5 and 71 cents, you know, it's, uh, it, it erodes the margins. So, as my friends kind of parted ways and went back into corporate America, I needed something to do. Um, you know, I talked to my wife about it. I said, I can go back into automotive. Uh, you know, we can move back to the Midwest or, you know, maybe even do something in uh, like Nashville area partway. Um, and she said, I like it here. Find something to do in Florida. So um, as I packaged up and sold off the businesses that we had purchased, uh, it just made sense for me to do it for other people. So it was a natural fit. And, uh, yeah, well, well, this is, I mean, you, you live through a great primer, obviously. I mean, and, and so you're in Southwest Florida right now, speaking of Florida, Kevin's joining us right now from Lakeland, uh, live mm -hmm. here in the audience. Hey, Kevin, good to see you. Um, I want to dig into the divestiture thing a little bit because it's, it's an area that I don't talk about very often on this channel. Usually when we think about someone selling a business, we usually think about an owner operator, uh, someone who really is intimately involved in their business oftentimes, and then they sell that business and it's a, a monumentally important thing in that individual's retirement plan. Let's say like they, they want to sell this business for as much as possible and they've got an, a, lot, a lot of emotional ties to it. When we're talking about a corporate owner, you know, a big Fortune 500 company that decides some tiny offshoot enterprise somewhere deep within its its uh, you know organizational structure is no longer core. I, I I would bet that the the exit plan for that business is a lot less emotional. Can you kind of take us into what the considerations are when a big company decides to to carve off a department or divest itself of some subsidiary that they acquired along the way? 
Yeah, well, you know, you're right. There's absolutely no emotion involved in it. It's, uh, you know, hey, this doesn't fit what we're doing. It's not our, you know, it doesn't fit our vision, doesn't fit our future plans. It didn't deliver on, you know, what we were expecting it to deliver on. And uh, it's, you know, it's just pulling that lever. Let's let's uh, sell it. Well, of course, it's just like selling any other business at that, you know, point in time. You got to prepare it for sale. You know, you got to package it in the best light. You got to market it to, you know, the folks that you think are, you know, the the prime uh, audience or buy of buyers and then, uh, you know, execute the process, you know, solicit offers, go through due diligence, get the deal to the closing table, you know, and, you know, quick transition and you're done. Yeah, there's there's definitely a commitment to trying to get something done in a timely fashion, isn't there? I've I've actually hear, heard other people say, you know, the the motivation was to make sure it was wrapped up before the next fiscal year. You know, just right. there's an incentive almost to get it taken care of before it leads to further overhead burdens in the organization. Further overhead burdens, just uh, diverting resources towards it when, you know, there's, uh, you know, money making or other profitable endeavors that, you know, the company wants to focus on. So, you know, it becomes a distraction. And when you have a business, it's a distraction. Yes, there, there's incentive to get rid of it sooner than later. So in your in your experience as a business broker, you have been involved quite a bit in businesses that are that are pretty capital intensive. Is this uh, mm -hmm. because of your background in automotive? Maybe have you had a better uh, chance at connecting with those types of business owners? Well, yeah, automotive and manufacturing. My, my first job out of grad school. Uh, well, my first job out of undergrad, uh, I worked with a uh, engineering consulting firm. So I worked with, uh, you know, any type of production facility. We did simulation and uh, uh, prove out of, you know, mostly assembly type situations. So any type of manufacturer, I was, you know, that got me, uh, you know, involved in all kinds of different, you know, business types that, you know, manufactured and assembled. After that, after grad school, my first job was as a, uh, it was a CAD and CAM uh, software product manager. So I was working, you know, pretty extensively with uh, machine shops, metal vendors, uh, you know, and, and uh, custom fabricators, you know, throughout the U.S. Those were my clients. So, you know, I got an opportunity at that time to go in, meet with those types of business owners. And a lot of them small, just like the ones we sell today, you know, and some of them are larger. But um, still, it's, uh, you know, the ability to walk into one of those uh, machine shops or metal vendors and, you know, be familiar with the equipment, be familiar with the process, you know, and talk to the uh, owner, you know, it certainly pays dividends. So given your background and, and given your familiarity with manufacturing and, and sort of investment in, in big capital equipment and things like that, when you were becoming a business broker, and I noticed you're a member of the IBBA and the Board of Business Association and, and other organizations, what what was your thought when you saw how businesses generally are prepared and packaged? You know, the focus on SDE or EBITDA, uh, given your understanding of of capex investments. Well, you know, if you go back to when I started in two thousand nine down here, and even looking at businesses to purchase, you know, around the two thousand six, uh, five, six, seven timeframe, um, what I saw packaged was pretty poor. Uh, you know, mm. uh, 
business brokers and the brokerage community just didn't have a lot of uh, knowledge about how to put a business together, package it and, and, and sell it. A lot of times you would just get financial statements that were hand marked and, you know, maybe a couple of paragraphs on the business, um, you know, but things have changed. You know, you, you mentioned an association like IBBA, you know, and our business brokers of Florida Association, uh, merger and acquisition source. I mean, they've, they've really stepped up. Uh, all those organizations have stepped up on education of brokers. And because of that, you're seeing, you know, uh, better and better uh, produced, uh, you know, SIMs or confidential business reviews, whichever you want to call it, um, you know, on businesses. And on the, on the highly capital intensive ones, it becomes more important because, you know, you're, you know, when you look at a business, it's really worth, you know, the assets and some goodwill based on, you know, a positive cash flow. So when you've got a, a large asset base as part of the, uh, the acquisition, you know, that documentation of, you know, specifically what equipment, you know, and other assets are involved, you know, becomes extremely important. Do can you take us through some of the conversations maybe you have with some of these business owners? I, I know that personally, when I've spoken to some people that have very, you know, equipment intensive businesses, they'll they'll have this idea that their their cash flow is multiplied to somehow represent goodwill, and then this is added to the value of the equipment. And I have to explain to them, no, what the person is buying is they're buying the cash flow, and so. Oftentimes that very valuable equipment base often means, relatively speaking, the goodwill can appear quite low. Do you, do you find that some of these business owners have a hard time sort of accepting that, that thought process? Can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, many do. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, just what they've been told by other, you know, advisors who've never really sold a business. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've gone in and chatted with a business owner and they say, well, you know, my CPA told me this, or my accountant told me this, or I just had a certified business appraisal and it says this. And I look at it and I'm like, well, you know, in a perfect world with a perfect buyer, um, maybe. But the reality is, is, you know, it's not a perfect world and they're the perfect buyers. If you can find one, you're lucky, right? Um, they just don't, they just don't grow on trees. So you see things, you know, I've seen things like in valuations where, you know, let's say it's a software firm. I saw one time um, where the, you know, it was a small operation. They had a customer service person, they had a, a programmer and they had a salesperson. And they were like, okay, well, we can add back the customer relations person because whoever buys them is going to have a customer relations staff. We can add back the programmer because whoever buys them is going to have a programmer and we can add back back the salesperson because whoever buys them is going to have the salesperson. Well, now you got all this great cash flow there, but you have nobody that knows anything about the business life. You know, and I mean, this came out of a certified appraiser. I'm like going, well, you know, that $1.3 million valuation that they gave you, um, you know, the reality is, is that that business is going to sell between six and 700,000. And they're like, well, can we, we price it at 1.1? And I'm like, it's just not going to draw attention. And they're like, well, can we price it at a million? I'm like, all right, let's price it a million and see what happens. I had seven offers between 600 and 700,000. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so 
what, you know, setting the expectation of the seller. I mean, to, to me, that's one of the biggest challenges I think that, that brokers have. And, and we mentioned earlier, you know, there's a, there's a wider range of quali quality in this space. Uh, mm -hmm. It's one of the things that I find a lot of brokers maybe aren't quite good at is setting those expectations so that people understand what kinds of offers that they're going to get. Um, you know, what, were you, I'm surprised that you were willing to list it at a million. Do you ever think maybe that it's just going to be a big waste of your time? I did, um, but it came as a referral. So I didn't want to disappoint the referral source. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I did spend a lot of time setting the expectations on that. You know, I flat out told them you're you're just not going to see anything north of like, you know, maybe you'll get lucky and you'll see seven hundred and fifty thousand, maybe eight hundred, but you're never never going to see, you know, one point anything remotely close to one point three million. So business just in, doesn't. In that, yeah, in, in that software example, it sounds like the person who prepared that evaluation was sort of assuming that this would be done as a strategic acquisition. Uh, one of the things that I say to my buyers is I say, you know, you may realize some efficiencies in your acquisition, but you pay for what you get. Any advantages or improvements you make to the business really are part of what you're bringing to the table. Um, do you find that in that in that particular instance, did that seller have a hard time understanding that those efficiencies really didn't belong to him? Yeah, he understood them, um, you know, but. You know, when you pay for, you know, a certified appraisal and you spend, you know, a large amount of money for it, you know, you're in your mind, you're like, well, I, you know, I've got to justify that appraisal and justify paying for that appraisal. So it's tough to overcome, um, you know, but I worked on them, worked on them, worked on them. And, you know, when I spoke to the buyers and they said, well, this seems really overpriced, you know, I'd say make an offer. You know, I've told the buyer, uh, I told the seller, I'm sorry that, you know, I, I think it's overpriced too, you know, but I'm not going to negotiate against that price. So just make your best offer and we'll see what, what happens. You know, like I said, okay. I, mean, I keep getting offers on it. So, you know, people were very interested. It was a, it was a very unique piece of software and, you know, very uh, interesting piece of software at the time. And, um, you know, there was definitely demand for it. We've uh, we've got Victor who's turning tuning in from Nottingham over in the UK, and uh, he reminds everyone that uh, he just gave the video a like. So if you're watching or listening, please help out just like Victor has and and give us a like. Um, so so you've been in this then for quite some time. I mean, you you've had your brokerage office open since the late uh, '90s, you said, or early 2000s. Well, well, I, I started selling businesses for other people in 2009. Uh, I okay. hung my, my, in, in Florida, it's a real estate state. So you have to have a real estate license, um, to sell the assets of a business. So I, I got my license in 2009 and then I, uh, hung it with a gentleman out of, uh, Orlando area named Bert Risden and worked for him until, uh, 2014. And then I founded Edison business advisors. Okay. And, you know, you brought up real estate. There, there are several states and Canadian provinces where you have to have a real estate license to do business brokerage. But I think one of the things that makes Florida kind of unique is that the, the real estate profession is really entrenched in this world of business sales. It's one of the few jurisdictions I've run into where you sometimes see buyers and sellers each with their own agent. 
Uh, can you comment on that a little bit? Like how, how often do you get approached by a buyer who has an agent of their own or a broker of their own? Yeah, it's actually quite frequent. Um, you know, that's a, that's a great topic because uh, many people just don't understand Florida because they're used to working in California, Colorado, where there's no co-brokering. So, you know, you have to contact the agent who has the business for sale and they'll work with you. Um, you cannot, you know, uh, in our state, I can actually, you know, show other buyers the listings of other brokers throughout our state, you know, who belong to our association. So it brings the brings to the table, you know, in a quick and efficient manner, you know, significantly more businesses for a buyer to look at quickly. And in the end of the day, I think it sells more businesses. Uh, I don't think the other states, you know, who who kind of are standoffish against it, understand the value of co-brokering. Yeah, we do about, I would guess uh, about, I think the statistics were about 37% of all deals, 35 to 37% of all deals, you know, in the state of Florida are co-broke. Um, you know, and you, you think about it, if the buyer had, you know, 37% of those deals, if the buyer had to find it themselves, how many of those wouldn't have been found? I'd guess it'd be more than half of that. So you're, you know, I think your sales volume goes up by 20, 25% easily, um, you know, as a broker do, because of the ability to co-broker and the success do, rates do you, for buyers and sellers go up accordingly, which is great too. Cause that's, that's the intent of the business, right? It's not to list the business, it's to sell it. So if you can, uh, you know, expose it to the most, more people through other brokers, great. Okay. Do, do you find that where the real estate agents and the business brokers are so much closer related, do you, do you find that sometimes you get intermediaries that maybe aren't as experienced or knowledgeable as you would like to see, you know, getting involved? Well, our state association put some rules in place. I think it was about four years ago. We fought really hard to put them in place. And that, that was, you know, you saw, we saw a lot of residential and commercial realtors trying to sell businesses and it's a special yeah. skill, you know, it's the financial acumen that you require, you know, to prepare and sell a business is, you know, unlike, you know, selling residential and commercial real estate, you know, the, uh, the marketing is totally different. You know, you're trying to sell a business where you can't tell someone what it is, where it is, um, you know, in specific terms, you can tell them in very, very vague and, uh, you know, cloaked in confidentiality type terms. Uh, you know, and you got to try to entice someone to inquire on it and, you know, ask for more information, give up a bunch of information on themselves. So we know who we're talking to and we're not talking to someone who's an employee, you know, or a customer or a competitor who can harm the business. So I mean, it, it's totally different. So we put in a whole bunch of uh, hurdles for residential and commercial realtors to get into our state association. It doesn't stop them from selling businesses outside of our state association, but yeah. it does it, you know, the state association has enough horsepower behind it, you know, in the, in the, in the um, eyes of buyers and sellers, when they look to purchase a business or sell a business, they go to one of our members first. Okay. Okay. It's interesting because back when I had my business brokerage open, I was trying to network and I had to have a real estate license to be a broker here. And when I would network with other real estate agents, what I was finding, this was very interesting, and I think it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I would find that residential home selling realtors 
were highly likely to try to list a business for sale if they came across that business owner who would give them an opportunity. However, the commercial realtors, the guys who were selling warehouses and leasing office space and stuff, they were quite readily willing to uh, refer those businesses they mm -hmm. came across to me. And I, and I think it's because they were in the commercial space. They actually had a little bit of a better understanding that selling a business was something that they didn't understand. And so they were much more willing to refer that over to me. And what I did in several cases is I would actually end up, if the business owned real estate, I would end up splitting them and I would sell the business and then refer the seller back to that realtor to sell the building. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and we might end up with two different buyers, one for the real estate, one for the business. Um, but I, I just have a, a list of stories, probably a dozen or so of, unfortunately, business owners who ended up trying to sell with a, with a residential real estate owner who ended up never selling and the business ended up closing. And just these, these terrible outcomes because of the, some of the stuff you're talking about is the, the person that was trying to help them really right. didn't know what they were doing in the transaction. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I get a—I get a lot of referrals from both, uh, both residential and commercial real real estate agents, you know, here, which is which is great because uh, you know, a lot of them are, I guess, uh, intelligent enough to know that you know it's it's two different vocations, two different skill sets, mm. you know, but there are some that you see, you know, trying to sell you know, businesses. And sometimes you see, you know, most of the time it's like a, a small hair salon or it's, uh, you know, a very small restaurant, you know, but occasionally you'll see someone, you know, a, a, like a residential real estate agent trying to sell a dental practice. Well, a dental practice is a very complex uh, sale and, you know, packaging that up. So a buyer understands what they're buying, you know, can be, you know, make a difference of millions of dollars, you know, on the sale price. You know, we, we, I'll give you one example. We took one that uh, had an offer for $4.7 million. It was a uh, four dentist dental practice, you know, in Fort Myers. And we packaged that up, uh, sh shopped it out to, you know, a bunch of uh, DSOs, dental service organizations. And we ended up selling it for $7.4 million, all because it was packaged and prepared for sale you know, before without that expertise or without that, you know, uh, level of knowledge, you know, it was a $4.7 million deal. I think it paid for my commission, you know, several times over. So, you know, I think everybody was very, very pleased on that one. That's awesome. That's awesome. But let's, uh, let's get back to the, the equipment intensive businesses. What, what would be some of the, you know, bits of advice that you would have for business owners that have a lot of capital equipment in their business? Maybe if they're thinking about selling in a few years, what sort of things should people be thinking about in order to better position themselves uh, to get ready and sell? Well, with, ev with every business owner, not just the capital, you know, uh, intensive ones, you want to keep your books as clean as possible. You know, you don't want to run a lot of uh, crazy personal stuff through your business. Some is okay, but just make sure you're, you know, it's very well documented. Um, but with, uh, with your folks that let's say a machine shop or metal bender, you know, make, keep your maintenance records, you know, uh, on file, those will be checked. Those will be looked at because, you know, those pieces of equipment that you're selling are so important to, to the buyer and, and you as well, you know, you want to keep them running. Um, the other thing you need to think about is, you know, uh, you know, some, 
some sellers will come to me and they'll say, well, you know, I really need this piece of equipment, uh, you know, because I've got this contract coming up. But if I'm selling, I don't know if I want to buy it. You know, I'm like, well, what's the lead time on it? Well, it takes three months to get it and have it installed. I'm, I'm like, OK, well, you better, you know, order it, get it installed, run your business like you're never going to sell. Uh, because, you know, what good is a contract if you don't have the piece to a buyer, if you don't have the piece of equipment, you know, installed, you know, to do the job, you know, it's uh, you're going to lose that contract. So always keep the mindset that you're never selling your business. You're running it into perpetuity. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, getting that through through to them is, you know, I think very, very important up front. That's probably the biggest piece of advice. And I, I see it all the time. You tell them that and then, you know, they're like, oh, well, I delayed this or I delayed that. And it's like, why? I'm like, well, you know, I thought maybe we were going to, you know, sell. And like, well, I can tell you why. It's because they have this idea that if they don't buy it, that somehow they get to keep that extra money in their pocket. Right. right. And and. Um, you know, one of the bits of advice that I give to people that have a lot of equipment in their business is to do a, a good inventory of what you're actually using and what you're not. Mm, because yeah. I've, I've seen instances, particularly in road building or or some mm. kind of like big uh, site prep companies where they'll own things. Maybe they had an opportunity to buy. Maybe someone else was closing and there was an auction. They bought something inexpensively thinking it was a good deal, but they don't really ever use that piece of equipment. And so the cash flow that they have is not really tied to owning that thing. Right. And so I'll say to those people, like, if you don't use it, you can probably sell it and put that money in your pocket and you haven't affected the value of your business at all. And, and that would effectively increase the goodwill of the business. Oh, I got some, yeah, I got a lot of stories on that. I mean, I remember going back to the recession, it was a plumber and uh, he had 22 vans sitting out out front. And, uh, you know, we're in the recession and, you know, home building had stopped and he was doing a lot of new home construction. And I asked him, you know, you've got 22 vans. I'm looking at your, you know, the amount of money you're generating. How many of those vans are actually, you know, out on the road every day? He said two. I said, you need to sell 18 vans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Keep a backup, but don't be crazy. Yeah. Just sell them, get rid of them. I don't want to, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to sell them for you because no one's going to buy the business with 18, you know, uh, unused vans. And he's like, well, I can't get that much money for as much money for them now. And I'm like, well, if I sell them as part of the business, you're going to get even less because now you've got to pay someone to get rid of them for you because the buyer doesn't want them. Um, you know, I've got one now, uh, just, uh, you know, this past week, um, actually we're having a conversation later today. It's a, it's a firearms dealer and, uh, they have, uh, because of, uh, COVID and supply shortages, they way overbought and they have probably, you know, if you look at comparable size, you know, uh, gun stores or gun shops, these are all like sporting rifles and things that they sell for hunting and hunting equipment. But if you look at what, you know, similar size businesses from a dollar volume have on, on they're, they're like a million dollars over in inventory, you know, and I've got to try to make that adjustment. So we're talking about that today. It's like, you know, if it's going to take us, you know, three to six to nine months to sell your business, what's that inventory going to look like, you know, at month three, at month six, at month nine, because what we should do is make the adjustments to the price. Um, 
you know, accordingly, you know, slowly degrade that price as you sell off all that excess inventory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned a couple of years ago, the, the Florida business brokers got together and made some rule changes, but we've had another big legislative change in the United States. Mm -hmm. There's a, a new piece of uh, law that came in the brokerage simplification act. Do you want to explain to us a little bit about what that was and what the problem was that it addresses? Yeah. You know, before, before it went into effect on March 28th, if, uh, uh, a broker like myself was involved in a stock sale. The SEC had what was in place, Securities and Exchange Commission, had what was uh, called a no action letter, basically saying that if we wrote up, uh, you know, uh, clauses in our contract that said, you know, buyer and seller mutually agree that a stock sale is beneficial, you know, I, the broker, will get still still get paid as a consultant on the deal, just as if it were a, an asset sale. And then we had to, you know, write up all kinds of, uh, you know, non-reliance and broker hold harmless agreements and all that just to keep ourselves protected um, in the event that a stock sale made sense. And stock sales often make sense if there's a license involved, if there's contracts that involved that won't transfer. So now with the brokerage simplification act we don't have to do any of that we can we can be involved in a stock sale we can receive a commission we don't have to call it consulting um, but the um, primary the primary you know difference you know in this whole thing is now because of that we can do what's called fractional sales so you know, you've got a, a large set of baby boomers looking to exit their business here in the next, you know, 10 years. And there's a shortage of people in that, uh, you know, millennial age group, uh, you know, and younger that have, are short of cash. They just haven't saved like, you know, the generations before them. So if they want to purchase a business, uh, the whole idea of a fractional sale or a partial stock sale now is, is wide open. So you can have, you know, someone who maybe doesn't have enough money for a full down payment or a down payment at all, but may have good credit. They can come in and buy 51% of the business. The seller can hold 49%. You know, they can uh, pay on that over a 10 year, like say SBA note or conventional loan if, if available and gain equity in the business. And then eventually when the seller is ready to tire, retire, you know, you can flip that other 49% over in, a, in a, either a rollover SBA note or some other uh, form of financing as well. So this is really opening the door to a lot of uh, more unique and different types of transactions, you know, that, that we're able to do now. And I see it increasing. I, I mean, I, and I'm seeing, uh, you know, sellers ask me about it right now. It's like they've got, you know, a family member they want to sell to as a fractional sale. They have a key employee who wants to buy the business now they can do it as a fractional sale so i see my role now is you know i'll probably do more consulting projects you know uh you know on these fractional sales you know versus uh you know straight 100 sales of businesses so you know people have always been able to come up with deals like that you know between buyers and sellers i so is what you're saying now, the difference is that somebody could come to you and say, I'd like you to promote this business for sale 
and, and actually say to people that I'm willing to look at one of these sort of fractional arrangements, uh, I'm, I want to stay on in some kind of semi-retirement capacity? Well, you can kind of promote it. Uh, you know, the uh, the SEC rule changes don't allow you to say, I, you know, this is a, as available as a stock sale if you don't have a securities license. But what I can do is I can do make mention that, you know, the seller is flexible on, you know, the the terms of the and conditions of the sale. And, you know, when someone contacts me and they say, hey, I'm looking, you know, at this business, you know, would the seller consider you know, a fractional sale, I can say, absolutely. Um, you know, we would do that and we would execute a stock transaction where you would buy in, you'd purchase a portion of the stock, usually a majority uh, of that um, uh, business. And then, you know, over time you can buy out the balance. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> it's creating a whole lot of more flexibility in the in deal structure and, but talking about it is still kind of there's still some fine line about what I can and can't say. So I got to be careful. OK, and so I'll, I'll, I'll say in advertisements and outward advertisements, I, I can't mention stock sale. And so the, the recent update proposed updated changes to the SBA rules then kind of kind of fit into this other set of uh, SEC rule changes. Um, where you know the deal making is going to be easier and then on the other side the financing for it should be able to come together as well yeah i think it i think it you know solves a lot of problems that, that we're seeing right now like i said it's a, a, a large number of people looking to sell their you know small privately held businesses and then a, a, a large buying populace that's uh you know doesn't have the uh, capital to do a 100 uh, percent acquisition yeah yeah Interesting. Awesome. So, so Eric, you know, there's a lot of people here talking about forecasts and, and what they expect to have coming up here in the, in the near future with rising interest rates and everything. What's, uh, what's your outlook on the, the small business for sale marketplace uh, down in Southwest Florida? Well, I think, I think it's, everything's, you know, kind of back to normal a little bit. I know the three quarter uh, of a point interest rate hikes that they had, you know, in, uh, was it uh, late 2022, um, you know, earlier this year, the quarter point interest rate hikes kind of calmed the market down. So I saw, you know, people, the stream of sellers is steady. They just keep coming. I don't, I never see the economy or anything change that, but buyers for about six months after those two, three quarter interest rate hikes just kind of stepped back, wanted to see what was going to happen. Um, but, you know, with the uh, latest announcement that, you know, the third quarter hike was going to be, you know, uh, a quarter point and the fourth quarter hike was going to be a quarter point, telegraphing that to the buying community, got them settled down. Um, you know, they can, they understand what the costs of an acquisition are going to be now. So we're seeing them back in the market, you know, and, and activity is, I would say, back to normal. But people are taking these higher interest costs into account. I would imagine that the the exuberance of the offers has tempered itself quite a bit. Well, you know, you just adjust. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple ways to do that. One is, uh, you know, if you're going to go the SBA route, right, and the cost of money is more, the price becomes less. It's just the reality of the situation. So sellers have to be educated that because, you know, 
someone's going to leverage the deal through a bank, they're going to be paying more for their money, which means less money, you know, to put down on the principal, less money on the principal is a lower sale price. You know, and the other way to do it is you move to seller financing where you can control the interest rate and the lower interest rate offered by seller financing may get you, you know, a higher sale price. Hmm. So it becomes a, 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 you know, and buyers will always take seller financing over, over a, a bank note always hundred percent of the time. So, um, you know, it just becomes a personal decision by the seller, you know, uh, whether they're willing to take the risk and be the bank, you know, for a buyer. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing the same kind of thing. I'm, I'm seeing one of my clients describes it as a series of dials on a machine. If you, if you turn one, the other ones have to adjust. And, you know, there's, there's got to be a give and take on all, all sides and, and the sellers that want that highest price, you know, if they're willing to carry more at a fixed rate, you know, then maybe it's feasible. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, everyone who goes to buy a business is doing so because they want to be able to get a head start in a money making activity. And if you can't set that person up for some degree of success, they're just not going to do it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, Eric, if, if people are curious to learn more or get in touch with you, what's the easiest way to find you online? Uh, well, you can go to the website. It's uh, www.edison, E-D-I-S-O-N, then B for business, A for advisors.com. Uh, they can email me at uh, eric at edisonba.com, or uh, they can uh, always call me on my handy dandy cell phone, which follows me everywhere I go. 239-738-6227. Awesome. It was great talking with you today and um, and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much. All right. It's great talking to you. Thank you so much. All right. And we're going to say goodbye with, uh, with a word from our sponsor here today. And uh, we'll see you next time. Special thanks go to today's video sponsor, Mark Willis of Lake Growth Financial. Mark helps people better manage their personal wealth and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've gotten lots of positive feedback from people I've worked with over the years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find a playlist of all the interviews I've done with Mark and to learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up to arrange a conversation about what this solution might look like for you. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com. You'll find hundreds of articles and videos all for free. You'll find links to my books and online courses, and you can sign up for my email list and get emails covering topics that interest you and be notified of new videos.